0: Did you know that in the late 1600s, a small group of ordinary people rose up against the establishment and changed society forever? The world called them pirates, but these pirates didn't just break the rules, they rewrote them. They didn't just reject society, they reinvented it. Pirate crews created equal pay, equal say, workplace compensation and even same-sex marriage. In the face of industrial-scale disruption, global conflict and an uncertain future, The Pirates of the Golden Age weren't quite the villains that Disney would have you believe. Welcome to our Be More Pirate podcast. I'm Alex Barker.
1: And I'm Sam Conniff. In 2018, my first book, Be More Pirate, was published by Penguin Random House. After 20 years working with young creatives, the book was an outlet for my frustrations and a quest for some new role models who could capture the spirit of rebellion I knew we so desperately need to tackle the big challenges ahead. And I found it in Pirates. The book then became something far bigger than I ever expected. Be More Pirate is now a global movement of people and organisations taking a stand to update the rules, systems and business models that are no longer fit for purpose.
0: And I went from being Sam's right-hand pirate to leading this community and writing a second book to tell their story. So if you, like so many in our crew, find yourself dissatisfied with the status quo, then this podcast is here to give you permission to do things differently. We'll be interviewing some of the best pirates out there, people who really live their values and are willing to stick their head above the parapet for the greater good. We'll tackle some uncomfortable conversation topics and delve into what it really takes to break and rewrite the rules today. I'm very excited that our guest today is George Mpanga, otherwise known as George the Poet. He's a rapper, a musician, an award-winning podcaster, and he's been described as Britain's most influential poet. But beyond that, he's a real agent of change. He sets out his ideas in unexpected ways and challenges your expectations of him at every turn, which is why we consider him a pirate. We hope you enjoy the conversation.
1: It's really nice to see and hear you, your face and voice, George. Yours is a career I've watched with, like, I don't know, bordering on pride, the level of excitement I felt, uh, having met you so long ago, sitting across the table at Channel 4 when we were judging the stake. An invention we made up to to prove a point that young people should be and can be trusted, especially when it came to some big decisions. And we convinced Channel Four and Barclays Bank to give away hundreds of thousands of pounds to young people who put their ideas forward. And you were one of the very few winners because of your. It was called the Jubilee Line, wasn't it? Yeah. <laughs> and you must have been what uh, college age? Twenty twenty one, uni. Uni, was that uni already? Just in uni, yeah. It was a few years, but, and then, you know, just watching you just explode and from, from the edges, you know, and like many other people, like cheering you on with these many turns of it. And one of the interesting things watching your journey is because is I've so often been sat alongside so many other young people. Yours is, you know, there's this kind of thing when someone succeeds and then they're perceived to have sold out, you know, whether they have or not, but, you know, whether the kind of the badge of authenticity can be maintained. maintained. And you've managed this kind of rare Thing like you know to keep stepping and then catching people off guard and just watching all the young people I've known continue to cheer and support even when you've you seemingly pushed away kind of the industry accolade everybody wanted Uh, and then again you know you pushed it further now again with the podcast it's just I don't know you seem to be a man of many polarities and not just that but not even you manage them you harness them well and that just you know is such an interesting lesson and I was. Reflecting on that and looking back at some of the points I think early on that had inspired me, and actually there was a line that I'd written down a while ago, and it was from uh, I can't remember which of your podcasts, but you were talking about the need for a new psychological infrastructure, mm. and I'd written it down so many times since, and I just think you know it's so difficult, and, and our work around piracy is about what you do when there isn't a map, and ideally what you do is give people a compass. And, the, and the, the compasses are based on polarity and, and never really n- knowing you're going one way or the other, but understanding the difference in those polarities. And that really seems to be part of what you do. And if, if that's what leads to a psychological infrastructure, then more power to you. And I feel incredibly pleased, What in nearly exactly 10 years on, that our lives have converged again. I'm very grateful for the chance to have a conversation about rule-breaking the new world and a new psychological infrastructure. Hello, and thanks very much for talking to us.
2: Thank you, man. The stake was a long time ago, but it was a pivotal moment for me. And Be More Pirate, I, I attended a talk that you um, did on it somewhere in Hackney last year. I don't know if you remember that. I specifically went to that because I felt like it aligned with what I was trying to express in the podcast. I wasn't disappointed. So
1: thank you for your continued work. It's an absolute pleasure. Thank you very much. Like watching watching this and enjoying the podcast, man, Was we were discussing people would like to get on the show, um, and, you know, we were so excited when you responded, I don't mind admitting, because <laughs> yeah. you, you you embody what we were talking about. And Alex just said it when we, were, when we were preparing for this, like the idea of rule breaking, not for the sake of rule breaking, but for the sake of making something better is mm-hmm. exactly what you've, what you've done.
0: Yeah. But I, w- I want to go back to what you touched on in the intro, Sam, um, about the idea of the compass and because, Georgie you, you mix up so many ideas in your podcast and so many cultural references and, you know, it's, it's everything from where you grew up to things you've clearly absorbed along the way, stuff, influences are everywhere and it's incredible. But are there any really key ideas or philosophies that have just, that really resonate with you and kind of ground you and guide you as you've gone along that you kind of return to and you think this is what I'm about?
2: Yeah, that's a great question, Alex. I'm getting more and more into... Uh, the study of economics and something i read earlier today made me realize a fundamental difference in in um, my perspective of humanity versus what economics promotes and economics positions itself as the study of the distribution of scarce resources but i believe that there are some resources that are inherently limitless i believe ed- imagination is an is a limitless resource and if you can open your mind to the idea that y- you within yourself are limitless, then you start to see the limitlessness of your environment as in the people of your environment. And then more broadly humanity. That's a very important principle for me.
1: That's interesting. I've been, um, reading more about, you know, economics and economic related decision-making myself recently kind of around, um, this notion at the moment that we're facing this crisis. And then really, if I pan backwards, actually, you know, you remember there was another crisis before this crisis. And actually there was another crisis before that crisis. And actually I might be having a crisis as we go through this crisis. And there's this kind of real sense that we're in a crisis, within a crisis, within a crisis, within a crisis, you know, depending how far you want to go to the infinite climate catastrophe we face right down to my own anxiety as I look into this. And economics as as this rationale for why we need to, get back to a normal, once you really push into it it, it, it struggles to ladder up, doesn't it? Like the, who was it telling me, like the, the true etymology of economics comes from um, managing, managing the home better. And it's this kind of domestic idea that you look at your own resources and it's about balancing those resources. And we've somehow come really far out of that between this idea of scarcity and, 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 and limitlessness. But really for me, the core of it seems to be this idea of, of balance. like. And that has actually gone so far out of whack. So I guess what we're talking about, it's about navigation. Is economics a useful form of navigation or is that going to take us back to a set of ideas that have got us into trouble? You know, can economics be the answer to economics? Like Can, can conscious capitalism be the answer to extreme capitalism? I worry that perhaps it's not. But what's quite difficult for people is to come up with, well, what's, th- what's it's almost impossible. I heard this great phrase the other day that humans have got a natural shit threshold and we seem to have reached ours. at this exact moment, there's the need for huge imagination. We've just all kind of like experiencing a system 404 error because you can't deal with another, another thing. So we'll go back to the organizing idea of economics when actually what we need is, you know, something beyond that. Is it a new social contract, a new morality, some kind of governing compass point to help us work out what comes next? Because already the narrative is build back better. or a new normal, which is really just semantically an update on what we had. And that's, that's dangerous, dangerous ground. And that economics as a science is like the trump card of all trump cards. I also find pretty you know, risky territory as well.
2: Well, I, I think one of the things that I've benefited from is a cross-cultural reference point in my Ugandan heritage, Well, primarily my position in the black community, which is a minority experience that I have been so um, extensively immersed in across my life. But being able to go back to the African continent and have conversations with them about um, Ugandan politics and their perception of Western politics and the transformations across Western society, it makes me see that a lot of the things that we take as gospel (laughs) are not gospel. Africa, Uganda especially, being a society with a lot less regulation, um, a much younger population, It's like people's approach to problem solving, to quality of life is different. It's tempting to say, oh, you know, Africa, they're so poor and they're so happy. And I'm not going to lie, there's validity in that. But I'm not talking about that right now. I'm talking about a completely different framework to thinking about how society should be organised, how decisions should be made and in how to make the best contribution to your environment having the ugandan reference in contrast to the british reference has allowed me to think quite flexibly about what we might be missing um and as as i explained my my position in the black community as a as a minority ethnic person throughout the formal education system now in in the workforce and in the electorate i just feel i feel a little bit excited about the undermining of all, all of the, um, or so many of the institutions took for granted for so long. Um, and the fact that we have, we now have the technology, you know, we have the communication means and the access to information to quickly and rapidly and intensely and imaginatively rethink, um, the organization of our society. That's exciting for me.
0: I suppose, yes, we do have all of those things. And I think something that comes up when we do, we do talks and workshops about Be More Pirate is this idea of expanding your data set. And so in a really kind of clinical way of saying it, but just getting your information from a much wider range of places, which is sort of what you're saying about you're taking, you know, having the experience in Africa and bringing that into your perception of what's possible or what's not possible. Most people don't do th- I'm not saying most people, but a lot of people are, you know, very much embedded in the culture that they're in and don't even know how to necessarily shift their mindset to think much wider. So we always come up against this tension of meeting people where they are in order to actually communicate and then bringing them to closer to where you are. Now, how do you, do you manage that tension? Cause you, you use art, which is brilliant. Um, that really brings people closer, but do you have any like are there moments where that's really difficult when you're trying to have conversations saying, all this other stuff could be possible.
2: Yeah, routinely. (laughs) Um, And this is where the principle of limitless becomes very important. Mm. Because I see us all as a Wikipedia page, all right? Alex has her Wikipedia page. And um, if we think about what that page might say, there's going to be an intro paragraph about where her life began, maybe something about her career. But if we become really literal with this analogy, there are probably going to be hyperlinks to certain words And we all have those, we are all a set of hyperlinks. So if you tap into um, what is already taken for granted about your life and say, all right, I'm from there. And just ask ask yourself any question about that fact that has never been answered or that you never thought you'd have access to the information to um, understand. Say for example, the estate that I come from, I grew up in St. Raphael's Estate in Northwest London. Most of the residents of that estate have only recently been um, confronted with, uh, you know, the the history of the estate, only because it's going to be regenerated and only because we have concerns about the nature of that regeneration and the consequence of it. But suddenly we're finding out that it was largely built in the late 60s and early 70s, and this was what the population first looked like, and this is the kind of architecture. So therein, your your residents a place that you've taken for granted for years, you're finding a wealth of reference, hyperlinks that can take you into, you know, down other rabbit holes, which will connect you to a much broader conversation than you might have initially considered.
0: You've also said at times that owning your story is a secret to success. Um, and I 100% agree with that. I think we've actually written a bit about that in the new book about that to weaponize your story, you really have to own it and, and take it back from people who might own it for you or try to tell it for you. But that is also a really daunting thing to do for a lot of people, um, who don't maybe have, you know, huge amounts of confidence to just expose parts of their life that maybe are tricky. Um, but at the same time, it's really powerful to be vulnerable like that. So do you have any, I suppose, advice or ways in which you approach doing that? Or when, you know, maybe when you started out, did you find that Difficult or easy or work through it?
2: Great question, Alex. So for me, I avoided this for the majority of my career. I really did. I was much more interested in the in the um I guess in the capacity that I met Simon initially. Social entrepreneurship. Let's talk about what we can build to enable others to, you know, get on in life. And that was like my shield. We're only gonna talk about issues and people and groups and ideas. I'm not gonna talk about myself. I entered the music industry and I was constantly invited to talk about myself. And I was uncomfortable with that because I didn't think the story of George was the point of my career. I thought I'm probably gonna get in the way of my most meaningful contribution if if it becomes about me. The reason I had that suspicion or that apprehension was because I was being invited or induced into celebrity. You know, celebrity can feel vacuous. It can be self-serving. And I I was resistant to that because celebrity wasn't what drew me to poetry. And I didn't know how to reconcile that tension. I remember having conversations with the people I was working with in Island Records and in my management team. They're like, you know, George, you know, you could, you could do drama, you, you can write romantic storylines, you could... And I'm like, at one point in my life, I, that was the dream. I was going to be an entertainer, I was going to be an actor, I was going to be a rapper, singer, I was going to, you know. But I had just graduated stud- after studying sociology. And that process was one of healing for me because I carried so much anger about the life that we um, lived on the estate. So I was resistant and it took years after my departure from the music industry for me to realize a a few things, there were a few dominoes that led to me being like, I'm the story, I'm the story. If I claim ownership of my story and I correct what I regarded as the misappropriation of my story in certain aspects of my career, then that journey alone can become my muse. That gives the audience continued incentive to return to my discussion table. And that gives me every opportunity to be brutally honest. And that also allows me the license to be wrong. I'm not positioning myself as a professor, as an expert, as a leader. I'm a George in pursuit of the best George possible. It takes work though. It's not something that happened. I wouldn't want to sell it to people as something that you will just wake up and fall into. You have to decide that that's what you want
1: to do. It feels like the, um the kind of pro the artistic process of that though, the, the persistence of it, because a life lived in the open is a particularly strange thing. And so owning it, but there has to be parameters. So I wonder if, you know, you, you, Limitless is this thought you've got and your metaphor that you used was kind of the hyperlinks of the internet. So does the metaphor extend into the dark web?
0: <laughs> In Shabby a way, side. if
1: you, if, yeah, yeah. Like what's, you know, if you, are we seeing the Google version of George through the podcast? And what happens if we go on to tour? Like, you know, what, what's the other aspect of that? Because if you're discussing these parts of you, the vulnerabilities and the, the darker parts, you, the audience is more likely to return the further you get. So how do you deal with that? Like from it not to become salacious or provocative and then protecting yourself as well because the further you go off the edges of your own maps and down you know these rabbit holes of links who knows where you end up
2: yeah so I um I flirt with that I play with that in the second chapter where I I write a storyline in which the future George 10 years time is able to do some of some of the dreams that I currently have revolutionize social housing and do x y and z with poetry um but then he gets into a very salacious scandal, and then i I explore the idea of catastrophe. I explore the idea of you know the the court of public opinion and how that can that will i I feel that will turn against me one day somehow um and I'm very interested in that but uh what what guides me through that thought process or that fear is the idea that I'm weaponizing my narrative. You know, there are things that I have declared war on. I'm engaged in a war against racism, in a war against educational inequality. And because I am because because I, I am, I think, in a state of war when it comes to these issues, I see every event as an opportunity to gain new ground. And in reconciling myself with that idea, I have accepted that my inevitable fall from grace will present opportunities. And as COVID has taught me, I have no intention of wasting
1: a crisis. Is there such a thing as being anti-hubristic? You know, as you you describe the imminence of your fall, does that make your fall ever less likely in exactly the same way the opposite becomes true?
2: yeah i i I think so, but it it doesn't make the fall less likely it, it makes my i guess maybe it strengthens my response
1: yeah it feels like you were describing like a, a adaptability i suppose in the way that you were doing that, and you know that, that the, the need to constantly experience starting something from the beginning again is the freshest way to stay you know strengthen your adaptiveness
2: yeah
0: is there anything that you do like practically that helps you kind of get into, I don't want to say the zone cause that's awful, but yeah, the, that helps you do your best work. Like that helps you create the conditions you need to really like get into it. If that makes sense.
2: There are conditions which incline me to work more. And the main one is probably curiosity. Another one is frustration, but in terms of a simple routine, listening to good music never fails me it never fails me and the more i become curious about the influence of music on my cognitive process the more i'm i'm just amazed that this isn't part of our popular discourse music is i i guarantee if 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 um if all goes well then in 10 years time we're going to think about music very differently we're going to we're going to recognise the, the mental and, and, and emotional health benefits of, ex- of whatever I experience when I hear my favourite music. I would like for that to be part of our popular language, our common understanding of hu- the human psyche. When I listen to the music that I love, firstly, I engage in conversation with Former George's. The George that first heard that song. I'll always remember that George. I have songs that I've been listening to since I was eight years old. That I, at eight years old, identified as a good song. Then at 29 years old, I can stand by the decisions of that eight year old. I can say that kid had good taste. Then I have songs that were part of big moments in my life. They take, they're a time machine. They take me back to that moment. They... This music has the ability to bring to the forefront of my thinking details which would evade me if I wasn't listening to this music. This, this music can, can create context. It's it's just insane. There's not, I'm like, there's like maybe, maybe some smells and fragrances, but the thing about music is when you familiarize yourself with the arrangement of it and then the ideas that are presented in the, in the content of the lyrics, you have basically a, an almost regimented thought process that is able to refine itself and mature across your lifespan. Because the music is an absolute, you know, it's, it, it's, it won't change. It's been recorded. You can't, you know, that variable is fixed. The,
1: the, the um, unfixed variable... Is you give us a can you give us a taste of what's on the soundtrack of George? Like what is a what is a go to, you know, anthem, and what's something that will get you out of a low? Um, that's a good question. I have so many. I would say
2: Bob Marley, Buffalo Soldier. My mom used that song to explain to me the transatlantic slave trade when I was like three years old. Of course, she did. <laughs> When I listen to the song, everything
1: comes back to me, everything. So I'd be really interested to know a couple of things. So we know this, right? The, the system is failing in a compounding sense, and so much so that the, way, the only way to beat the system is to hack the system. So, you know, in the, the original ideas of this meritocratic system may have been more justified in the 50s, 60s, and 70s when your later life outcomes were more influenced by how you did at school. But now that's changed dramatically. We know the bigger indicator of our later life outcome is how well off your parents are, you know, and, you know, and the more we understand the systemized notion of it. And then post-institutional collapse, this is again the point of, of pirates. You need people or methods to navigate beyond those. And what we hope, these rebellions that we work on with people, are the beginnings of the new systems. And so what's the role there of this kind of emotional, musical, creative journey what are the patterns you know that to to take it from a nice sounding idea into this has got the kind of the robustness or 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 the sophistication to lay foundations of new opportunities what's what's your hope there because there's there's a huge polarity to jump
2: you you have to become curious how is how does that whole thing happen again and again decade after decade trend after trend it's a little bit interesting it's a bit weird it's a bit intriguing um, now what I see on a, on a macro level for the communities that keep producing these, these innovations in music is that they're effectively in communication in the 1920s jazz started to emerge by the 1950s it had morphed into uh, R&B and rock and roll was starting to develop and two things happened Rock and roll took off in the in white America and in obviously white Britain, but also at the same time, Jamaican artists who had access to recording equipment started imitating the African-American R&B. And in that imitation, they, they created an innovation. They, they developed an offshoot called SCAR, Scar became the sound of Jamaica. And that was defined by the offbeat. It's an innovation, it's just genius. Instead of one, two, three, it's now one, two, three, four. So it's like, they just came up with that and they just ran with it. Scar eventually became reggae. Now, an interesting thing happened. Uh, Parallel to that development was the migration of a lot of Jamaicans into the east coast of America a lot of them settled in new york many of them settled in brooklyn and the bronx and with their migration came um their sound system culture which had developed under scar again this is all the product of their social economic conditions because there weren't personal stereos widely available they used to have these massive systems playing music to the whole community, um, that became a big event, that became a culture in itself. And their practice of that in the Bronx, New York, led to the proliferation of hip hop music. And over here in London, we responded to hip hop. We responded to uh, reggae, which then became the two-tone ska revival over here as Jamaican immigrants started to mix with working class white um, kids. And they shared that. Eventually, morphs into jungle rave culture. Garage becomes grime. Grime just morphs into UK rap. Morphs into so it's like it looks like oh, uh, this thing has been co-opted by capitalism, and it it doesn't serve a function. But if you ask the people that are practicing it, whose lives are transformed by it, if you ask someone like myself who arguably has the opportunity to go and work in kind of more conventional pedestrian sectors, but who only comes alive when he sees himself in the musical context. This thing is so much more than, you know, a, 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 a capitalist, a, a dry capitalist operation.
0: You're absolutely spot on with that. Um, curiosity is the way through and just listening to you. It it does feel like that Wikipedia rabbit hole you were describing earlier. (laughs) Um, So we're nearly out of time now, but I sort of, I don't know, I don't want to let you off the hook without this one final question. We talk about, oh, it's okay to fail, but then when it comes to it, you know, no one really wants to admit it or do it. Have you had an experience where you've really messed something up? Or you've maybe put something out into the public domain that you've gone, "Mm, in hindsight, probably wouldn't have done that.
1: Yeah. Yes, 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 yes. You've got to help me narrow it down. Do you want- what's, what's the failure you'd most like to be famous for? Um.
0: That doesn't feel like failure, Sam.
1: No, but then surely that matters making you think about the one that you'd like others to learn from. So at least the cost of your failure has benefit to someone else.
2: Mm. I, I can think of examples. It's just I'm trying to think, I'm, I'm trying to frame them as failures because a lot of these things I, I, I didn't. I don't think of them. By failure, you mean something that I, I would have I done differently.
0: Yeah. I mean, you can look at it two ways. Like a fail- I, I'd i probably go for a failure that didn't then turn into a success. A failure, or something that you go, if I could go back, probably wouldn't have done that.
2: It's backwards. Everything in my world is backwards because I'm an anti-clockwise thinker. But I would say some of the things I said in my poems and my songs, I would do them differently. I'm not proud of it. Basically, if I'm being harsh on myself, it was shitting on my community. But that's because my art was personal. So in the way that you might have a very ugly argument with someone that you love, I did a lot of that in my earlier work. And I don't want to, I don't want to make, I don't want to complicate fans' feelings with any particular thing, so I'm not going to pinpoint any lines, but there are things that I can't even bring myself to perform or to listen to, and they're still celebrated to this day. I guess I'm still going through a process of forgiving myself, accepting that. I was younger, didn't have as the, I didn't have the information I have now, but I would, I would just take it back to that cliche, man. You can never take back something you've said, you know?
0: Yeah. Thank you. Thank, I think, honestly, think it is valuable for people to go, even people with really successful records that people love, don't always look at them in that way themselves. I think it helps for people to take a bit more of a risk when it comes to creating stuff and also you you quite clearly show through the podcast as well that it's all a process for you that like and then you kind of reconcile other things later on anyway so almost those earlier arguments are just yeah a snapshot in time of where you were and that feels fine to be there
2: appreciate you saying that yeah and yeah i do encourage other content creators other storytellers everyone i I encourage you to See that, see your past as that, a collection of moments that brought you to where you are.
0: Thank you for tuning in today. Our hope with this podcast is that each time it might inspire a few more people to realize that the way things are is not the way they have to be, and that maybe it's time for you to step up and take that leap into the unknown. If you like what you heard, then please consider subscribing to the podcast on the platform of your choice. Even better, share this with a friend, leave a review, let us know who you'd like us to interview next, or of course, just tell us how you're being more pirate. We are first and foremost a community, so we'd really love to hear from you. Go to at bemorepirate on Instagram or Twitter, or visit bemorepirate.com. See you next time.